welcome to your podcast, Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast hosted by your El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am Idali Tiscareño, your host for the show. We want to welcome Congressman Will Hurd, but before I do that, I'd like to take care of some quick housekeeping items. If you're looking for commercial and real estate in El Paso, reach out to our friends at Epicenter at 915-532-3456. They have locations all over El Paso. Also, special shout out to Sun Carpets for sponsoring our podcast room. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Congressman Will Hurd. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's wonderful having you here. So, starting off with our first question, it's in regards to uh, the Paycheck Protection Loan Program, Mm -hmm. also known as the PPP loan. It's been a saving grace and a source of aggravation for many business owners already struggling to survive the fallout of the pandemic. The Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act was recently passed, easing restrictions on how businesses could use loan proceeds and remain forgivable. Can we expect to see additional changes made to the program after the most recent legislation, and what would those changes be? Um, Good question. The the short answer is um, uh, I don't know, Um, and and, and here's the reality. The, the, The whole point of the PPP. Uh, let's let's go back to to March, right? Uh, PPP was part of the third um, stimulus package, if you will, and, and the whole concept of these first three bills, which were done in a bipartisan, bicameral way, was to strengthen unemployment. So if people were unemployed because of the the aftermaths of of COVID nineteen, and that people were allowed that they had to take off of work, and they were able to do that. So those were some of the initial issues. Um, making sure that there was money for testing and PPE, um, you know, that was that was the important part. And then, and then the, the subsequent bills were looking at uh, business owners who were concerned about meeting payroll and um, how can we help them. And then, and the major industries that were going to be impacted by uh, COVID nineteen. And and so part of the way to stabilize um, those those small business owners that were worried about payroll was through the paycheck protection program. And when it was, when it was first passed, uh, the idea was to get these funds out quickly. Um, We were going to use existing infrastructure to do that. So that's why local banks and credit unions and and folks were able to do it. So after this was passed, this was set up within eight days and the first eight days of the program, $350 billion was, was distributed um, and, and the number of folks that, that were impacted in Texas, those billions of dollars um, came, to, came to Texas. Uh, we were the largest state that received these funds. And, and you know, as of June, early June, 361,765 Texas small businesses have gotten over $40.4 billion. That's a, that's a whole lot of dough. Now, one of the problems that we, we found is by the time this was passed and implemented, there was um, an eight-week horizon on which if you had this loan and you were able to pay for 75% of that loan was used for payroll, utilities, rent, things like that, the loan would be forgiven. So in essence, this turned into a grant. And some of the businesses were having a problem that that eight-week period was not enough in order to do all the things that were required in order to um, get the the loan forgiveness in essence. 
And because we were hearing that feedback, because chambers all across the country uh, were reaching out to their members of Congress, um, that's why we passed this, this most recent um, piece of legislation, uh, the, the PPP Flexibility Act. And that moved from an eight-week time horizon to a 24-week time horizon. And so now you're going to be able to use those funds a little bit longer and get us a little bit further into, into the recovery. So uh, the original question is, are there gonna be additional changes to PPP? Um, Treasury has the ability to tweak some of the formula of how much funds have to go to certain projects. Um, uh, there's not debates around that right now. Um, and we'll see as we start getting further into the recovery, is there a need for that? Um, but, but the conversations that I'm having with with business owners um, is that this most recent fix was good. The question may be, um, do we put more money into it in another, in another you know, uh, stimulus package or CARES Act? And that probably won't happen. Um, and those debates on what the next step should be probably won't happen until after the July 4th weekend. So Congressman Hurd, you mentioned on the first question that it was very important for the community to have the right PPE and materials to fight the pandemic. So while businesses have been hit hard by COVID-19, COVID-19 has also been particularly devastating to the most vulnerable populations. So talk to us about the work you have been doing to ensure that these populations receive necessary and critical assistance. Sure, and I think a community that is exceptionally vulnerable is the, is the homeless community. And um, we, I've been working with some of my colleagues, especially Henry Cuellar down in Laredo, on, on programs like the Emergency Service Grants. Um, these are grants that are made uh, available through, through HUD, uh, the, the Housing and Urban uh, Development Department. And this is something that we were able to set aside in the, in the CARES Act. And, and what this has done, uh, we basically have gotten $18 million for you know, San Antonio, Bear County, and El Paso um, to, to work to, to support uh, homeless assistance and homelessness prevention activities uh, due, to, due to the impacts of COVID-19. And, and in El Paso specifically, uh, we've gotten close to $4 million um, for for this project, so that that's just one example of of what we're trying to do to make sure the resources are there uh, for existing programs. Uh, another area that I spend a, a lot of time on is is also um, um, you know kids that are on free and reduced lunch um, because they weren't able to go to school. Uh, you had a lot of children that weren't able to get two square meals a day. And, and this is a problem that we see in the summers usually where uh, those kids that usually get something in uh, um, something to eat during school, they don't do that during the summers. And so we were seeing some of the similar problems. And, and one way we were working, I was working on this was um, a thing called the pandemic EBT. Uh, EBT is Electronic Benefits Transfer. That's what we know as the SNAP program or um, food stamps. And, and in Texas, it's a, it's a credit card in essence um, called the Lone Star Card. And so what we wanted to do is that if a family had a child that qualified for free and reduced lunch, that there was additional money put on their Lone Star cards, so they can go and shop in the grocery stores. 
Um, our, our food system is designed for us to shop at grocery stores. And we've seen the impact that, that COVID-19 has had on communities that are needing uh, to go to, to food banks. Uh, many people saw that picture in San Antonio of the, the 10,000 people in line at food bank. That, that picture went viral. And one way we were addressing that is making sure that young kids uh, don't go hungry in the pandemic. Um, EBT is one way to do that. We were successful in getting that designation for Texas, and we're, we're trying to make sure that we keep that designation as long as this pandemic is ongoing. That's right. So it's been uh, changing constantly, everything here in the U.S. Um, so Rita, do you have the next question? Yes. So um, as mentioned before, you know, people have a lot of questions nowadays and stuff, especially with everything going on. So businesses are also constantly asking us about liability protection. Can you tell us a little bit about liability protection legislation and the negotiations that are currently going on surrounding this issue? Sure, and and I could say at the at the beginning of this pandemic, um, you know, it, it brought lawmakers together um, to serve the American people. We the fact that we had three bills, um, the beginning of the negotiations were bipartisan and bicameral, and and the most recent one that passed the House um, uh, didn't follow that, and and that it, 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 we weren't able to pass um, a bill that introduced. Um, a liability protection uh, for for businesses and and this is there's been there's been similar examples in in our history where a, a temporary you know uh, injection of liability protection happened after 9/11. There, there's a number of examples um, and and this is something that in essence if you're following if you're if you're a retailer. And you're following the best practices when it comes to hygiene and keeping people safe. If somebody comes in your shop and and somebody gets COVID-19, that you're not liable for that. And um, this is something that will, it, you know, um, the Senate has said is a must to be included in another package um, if there is a, a fourth bill. Um, that's passed on on COVID-19. So these these discussions are continuing, and and another area that that we're talking about, you know, want to help is a 501c6s. That 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 matters to y'all because most chambers of commerces are, are 501c6s, and weren't able to benefit from programs like the PPP. Uh, so that's another thing that again, um, many of my my Republican colleagues support. Um, and this is a, this is probably a red line for for Senate Republicans, and so if there is a fourth package, which would potentially um, probably won't come to a floor or or de debate won't seriously happen until after the Fourth of July. Right. So, Congressman, uh, I know we've talked about. Uh, you know, different populations that have been affected and industries. And as we gained a better understanding of how COVID-19 spread, uh, businesses were forced to change to help clients and customers better adhere to social distancing. Um, this has varied from uh, using new technologies and, you know, something as simple as putting stickers on the floor and indicating where to stand in line. Um, so how has COVID-19 impacted the way that Congress does business? Can you talk to us a little about the idea of proxy voting specifically and what concerns you the most about voting by proxy? 
Sure. I think those are, those are two specific areas, right? How, how has this changed Congress, right? For, for me, um, you know, I, uh, look, I, I have a, a, I hired a new staffer at the beginning of, in the middle of March, and I've only spent 30 minutes with her in person. Um, and that was during the interview, right? And so it is, you know, um, uh, remote working and distance working. Um, and, and, and to be honest, it has, it has created efficiency within my team, right? So we haven't stopped um, taking constituent calls and, and fighting for folks that have a problem, you know, businesses that were trying to access PPP that were having problem, the, the banks and credit unions that were having a hard time accessing the tools for treasury to offer PPP loans. Um, we've been, we've been fighting for that. We, we still have, you know, veterans that have issues. So, so that hasn't changed. Now, um, I also have been on a number of calls um, when it comes to appropriations. I, I've probably have done more appropriations work in this in these last three months uh, from the calls that we've been doing. Now, my issue with proxy voting is this: like, you know, Congress should be using the latest tools um, in order to do our job, but also to provide better digital facing services. But the issue for for me with proxy voting. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's very clear in the Constitution that, um, you know, you're, a quorum um, is half of the body, right? And a quorum technically means showing up, right? So there's a constitutional argument on being able to, you have to show up to vote. And in Congress, during the Civil War, during the pandemic of, of 1918, um, during during World War II, uh, when 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 the, the the British were burning down Washington D.C., uh, Congress still met. Um, Congress has been able to meet. Oh, and by the way, if you know if people that are working in in grocery stores like H.E.B. and Walmart are, are showing up for, for work, uh, Congress can as well. But if you if you take away the last vestiges of members of Congress having to interact with each other. I think it actually could potentially lead to increasing partisanship and, and those, those limited, you know, the, the, the interactions between individual members of Congress have decreased over, over the years, as I've been told by many of my colleagues that have been in this body for a long time. And if you take away that final bit of interactions that we have at committees that we have during floor votes um, where it leads to, to, um, you know, solutions being sought, um, I think you make the organization even more partisan than it is now, which is bad for the country. And so that is a ramification of, of that proxy voting uh, beyond just the issue of, of the constitutionality of it. And, and but, but one of the areas I think that pandemic, this pandemic has forced us to is rethink how we use technology. And, and that's why when we look at um, future bills, you know, can we be using um, federal dollars to help cities and states and other localities uh, modernize their digital infrastructure to provide those better digital facing services and Congress should believe on that. Thank you for those uh, very good points, Congressman. Definitely, we've all been learning to use technology in all different kinds of ways, especially for hiring new people. We know we've been using that as well here at the Chamber. Uh, thank you, Congressman. Yes, so on to our next question. Um, I wanted to kind of widen our scope a little bit and talk about the world and everything. 
And so there's been a lot of discussion surrounding the World Health Organization, actually, in regards to the COVID-19. Concerns regarding the response to the outbreak of coronavirus has been voiced by the administration. Can you talk to us about what you feel are the dangers of the U.S. having the lead the who? Sure. Uh, look, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, is was designed for all, you know, uh, a, you know, freedom-loving countries to work together on global pandemics. And, and it's been successful in dealing with a, a no, number of other health issues. And now th there were some questions and con some concerns of how WHO leadership responded specifically to the communist, the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, they, you know, criticized uh, Australia and the U.S. and other Europeans for what they saw were draconian um, um, measures to, to stop the spread of coronavirus. But when the Chinese did things that were, that were even worse, they didn't say anything. They haven't spoken up about missing um, missing scientists, you know, Chinese scientists that are dealing with COVID-19. They haven't addressed some unbelievably uh, racist responses to African countries um, where they were discriminating against um, African nationals uh, that were in China in, in response to COVID-19. There, there's a lot of questions. Oh, and by the way, the Chinese still haven't agreed to participate in, in sharing samples of COVID-19, which is a very basic activity that as a member of the WHO, you're supposed to be doing, right? So there's a lot of questions, and, and, and these are not just questions that the U.S. government has. Um, I recently drafted a letter to all the uh, the ambassadors for the countries that are members of the WHO, um, the ambassadors that are based in, in Washington, D.C., and I asked them um, to, to also, um, you know, um, uh, question WHO leadership or to pose a set of questions to WHO leadership because, you know, so we can get a response. And, and I've gotten responses from countries, you know, in every corner of the world that agreed that they have similar concerns and were willing to push the WHO leadership on this. Now, you can disagree with the WHO leadership, but still support the efforts and activities of the organization as a whole. And so pulling out of the WHO um, or an attempt to pull out the WHO doesn't solve the problem uh, that we, we've seen with WHO leadership. We should be standing and working and strengthening the relationship with our allies to force WHO leadership to, to change their ways. And, you know, it also p plays into the hands of the, the Chinese Communist Party by uh, showing that the U.S. is not willing to, to stand and, and you can't be counted on. Uh, the, the Chinese government is, is pushing disinformation within Europe, saying that um, the U.S. is not a reliable partner, but China can be. And so when you, when you pull out a multilateral organization like the WHO, um, it is, it, 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 for you, you, you reinforce that, that Chinese Communist Party narrative that the, the U.S. is not a reliable ally. So... Um, there's a lot of questions. You know, we, we've paid our dues for the year. There was some additional supplemental money. Um, the requirements, the pulling out of the WHO are, are super complicated. Um, but but this, isn't, this is something that, that um, is going to have a, a long-term negative impact 
on addressing um, these these major issues like like global pandemics. Right, definitely. Congressman, I just want to tell you we have about 10 minutes left, so just a little update mm -hmm. there. Thank you so okay. far for your so, answers. Um, and we're moving on to the next question. So I know we've talked about, you know, constant changes going on right now, and something seems to be consistent right now, which is the unrest of equality. So Congressman, you recently participated in protests in Texas calling for justice for George Floyd. This seems to be a lightning rod for a renewed social justice movement in America. However, I want to focus on another aspect of equality, and that is economic equality and justice. Time and time again, we see that minorities are less likely to have access to contracts, access to capital, and other necessary resources for business growth than their non-minority counterparts. So what more do we need to do to ensure that minority-owned businesses are able to achieve uh, parity with their non-minority peers? Look, I, I think it starts by highlighting the problem. If you, if you look at like venture capital and access to venture capital, minor, minorities and women-owned businesses don't get nearly the, the same level of support um, as, as other businesses. When it comes to the federal government specifically, um, the Small Business Administration, um, they have a, a program called the 8A program that's supposed to make sure that minority-owned businesses gain access to, to the federal marketplace. Um, you know, this is supposed to help with, with um, increasing the, the competitive viability of small businesses um, that are, and, and unfortunately, there's been a decrease in the number of small businesses participating in the program. And, and if, we, if we just compare 2010 to 2016, um, we had 7,000 8A participants in, in 2010, in, in 2010 uh, but six years later, you had only 4,900. And so um, this is even after we have tried to streamline the application process to, to, spur, to, to spur participation. So uh, there's a program out there. We need to make sure more business owners are aware of it. And, and we even in this most recent COVID-19 bill, the CARES Act that, that passed and got signed into law, uh, put 10 million for the Minority Business Development Agency. And this is um, uh, for funds to train and, um, and counsel minority-owned firms based on the impact of coronavirus. And so uh, that's, that is one area when it comes to, to, to the federal government. And, you know, uh, you know looking further into the future, uh, I'm spending a lot of time on, on, on trying to develop a national strategy for artificial intelligence. And how do you use artificial intelligence and, and machine learning um, to, to make better decisions, right? And so, you know, one of the things you grapple with when it comes to artificial intelligence is introducing bias into the algorithms that are being used. And so how do you make sure that you're able to detect bias and, and correct bias and algorithms so that algorithms are not doing things that we've seen, you know, uh, when it comes to housing loans or, or business loans, um, you know, decades ago. And so that's one area is looking at the, 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 the issue of bias when it comes to artificial intelligence, because that's going to be a growing uh, part of, of every um, industry of the future. 
Right. So that is a big uh, difference, what you mentioned in participation when it comes to small businesses. And I mean, we try to stay ahead of the curve and encourage these small businesses to keep in, uh, participating. So thank you, Congressman. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and this is what's great about this is what's great about organizations like y'all's, right? Like, you know, getting that feedback on what are the problems, what are the barriers and trying to understand that. Right. And, and so that's why that that give take relationships important. That's why you know organizations like the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Congress is important in order to understand the acute needs of business owners and how they're helping communities and figure out ways um, that we can that we can help. And so um, y'all's advocacy on, on these type of topics is is, is important. Yes, definitely, Congressman. We try our best, and thank you for that and for always supporting us uh, here at the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Thank you, Congressman. Yes, and we know that you do have to go, but as our last question, we want to ask, what's next for you? Maybe a buddy road trip show with Bethel? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what, what's next for me, I, I may let my hair grow out, not shave for a few <laughs> um, once, once this is all over. But look, you know, uh, for, for me, I've, I've always said that being a member of Congress is not something we should be doing for decades, right? That, that you know, these are, these are jobs that you should do for six, seven, eight years and then, and then drive away. On. And so I'm, I'm adhering to, to that, that, that principle that I said even back in, in 2009. But when I left the CIA um, in 2009, everybody thought I was crazy. It was a job that I loved and I was good at and I had a bright future. But I thought I could help the intelligence community in a different way. Right? And that's why I left um, a job I loved in order to run for Congress. And, and I'm leaving Congress because I think I can help the country in a different way. And, and um, I'm going to continue to work on issues that I care about, right? and, and whether that's, you know, doing creative things in the media, talking about technology and quantum computing and artificial intelligence and 5G, and why does that matter for us, but, you know, as individuals, but what are the geopolitical ramifications of these technologies and how that's going to impact our future, right? Um, you know, when I look at some of the, the things that, that I, you know, will remember in my time in Congress, it's, it's being in, in El Paso County and realizing that there were kids that didn't have access to clean water or didn't have access to sewers. And so being able to work with the North American Development um, Bank to come in and get the money necessary to put in clean drinking water and, and sewage to... Um, to 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 communities that I represented. Now those are the things that I'm going to remember. And you know how do I continue to work in public-private partnerships to help communities? And so I'll do that. Um, you know I talk a lot about AI and these technology issues, and to be able to work with companies that are on the cutting edge of technology and national security would be great. And then and then also working with academia in developing uh, Institute on Technology and Policy. And so how do we get that poli-sci major to have a data analytics minor and to learn enough about technology and policy to have an impact? Because this is gonna be the future of, of, of our country regardless, uh, and it's gonna to touch every industry. You know, the technological change we're gonna see in the next 30 years is gonna make the last 30 years look insignificant. So we better get, be ready to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. And so to be able to work on that, and then politically, 
Um, I've always said that the Republican Party doesn't start looking like America. There won't be a Republican Party in America. And why should everybody care about that, whether you're Republican or not, or whether you vote or not? It's because the, the way we have solved problems in this country is we've solved them by doing things together, right? Way more unites us than divides us. And the way we ensure that is to have the competition of ideas in November and to have strong people that are willing um, to solve problems and not just exacerbate contrast. And so, so politically, I'm you know helping good candidates across the country. And so, those are kind of the buckets that I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, playing in. Um, but but I also have five or six months left, and I'm gonna run through the tape um, and continue to help as many people as I can while I'm still a representative from the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. Yes, Congressman, and thank you so much. You've definitely big, uh, been a big influence um, in policy change and brought attention to important matters such as you know, using technology to help uh, minorities. We definitely appre appreciate that message of unity and uh, diversity, especially at this time that we, we all are in that need. So definitely thank you, Congressman. Yes, and thank you for your time, Congressman. We're sad to see you leave Congress, but we look forward to working with you in the future beyond your time in Congress. And, and thanks, thanks for thanks for y'all's time and, and for those that are listening and want to follow what we're doing. We're heard on the hill, H-U-R-D on the hill on whatever your your favorite social media is. But I, I appreciate y'all's time. Thank, thank you. you.